0: Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their game design convention, Metatopia, at Metatopia Online 2020. These panels have also been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and moderators at this event. Now, let's get to it. Episode 324 Building Better Character Connections. Presented by Kat Tobin, Becky Anison, and Sharang Bizwas.
1: Hi everyone and welcome to the Creating Better Character Connections panel. Um, My name is Kat Tobin and I'm the Co-Owner and Managing Director of Pellegrine Press. Um, And we're the publishers of uh, Robin D. Law's Drama System, um, which is specifically designed to um, to create uh, dramatic connections between the characters at the table. so that's why I'm here, um, and I'll let my my wonderful co-panelists introduce themselves. So we'll start with you, Becky.
2: Hello, I'm Becky Annison and I'm one half of Black Armada Games, um, and we have produced games such as Lovecraft Desk. But more importantly, for the purposes of this panel, we have—I have written me. I wrote them. Uh, when the Dark Is Gone, which was published by Cat uh, and Bite Marks, which was published by me, which are both games which have character connection and dramatic play rooted into the system.
3: And I'm Sharang Biswas, I'm an independent writer, game designer and artist, and uh, most recently um, Kat published uh, a book that I co-edited um, called Khanyan Hot Wax, An Anthology of Erotic Art Games, and uh, it's an anthology and a bunch of the games in there are about like drama between characters, and explicitly like, on themes of, of sexuality and intimacy. But it's all about the drama that comes with that. Um, And I'm very excited to be on this panel with with Becky.
1: Fantastic. Okay, Um, so I guess the the first thing that we'll touch on is um, why do we want drama between the characters in our games? Like what is what is good about having drama at the table? What is why do we want to create that in our game design? Anyone have any opening thoughts? Or yeah. So my, my
3: first it? my first opening thought is um we like game. I mean we play games. Um, for a large not only but a large part of playing a game is to explore different kinds of conflict, right? Like just like we read fiction or we uh, consume fiction, let's say, to see conflict and to see characters overcome conflict and achieve things. And um, we uh, some people think of conflict only as the violent conflict kind which is not necessarily true um it, it is very fun and very interesting to also play games where drama where human drama is the driving conflict right it's uh, so not like the, the the baseline why do i do it it is fun it is fun to play games <laughs> where there's drama that you have to overcome um, Kat cat and i were on a panel once where we did a scene about reconnecting with our mother and like uh, that drama was fun. Like she wanted something, I wanted something, and it was interesting trying to get to that place together. Um, so that's the, the first answer. It is a cool, fun thing to do.
2: I think that I would build on that by saying that there's all sorts of media out there which we enjoy having, fe- where we enjoy having feelings invoked in us via that media. Whether it is the finale of um, Infinity War avengers or it's your favorite novel you're reading it or in some cases you're rereading it and re-watching it to continue to have particular emotions and feelings evoked in you gaming obviously is no different to any of these other media in that it can evoke those feelings but it is different to those other media in that it's power to evoke those feelings i think because it's a participatory active thing as opposed to a passive consumption So I suppose I'd say it's really great to do because if you're enjoying it when you're watching a movie, why wouldn't you want it in your game?
3: I think that's a really interesting point, Becky, because when I, so when I went to Just Little Loving, right, which is, um, some of you might know in the audience, a five day long LARP that explores the start of the AIDS crisis in New York, right? Um, And when I went to play that, uh, people were like, oh, where are you going for a week? I'm like, oh, I'm going to the woods of Minnesota to play this game about AIDS. And they were like, what? Well, that doesn't sound like like a fun <laughs> thing. What kind of game is that? And, and my question to them is always, do you never ever watch a movie that makes you cry? Or do you never wa- <laughs> read a book that is tragic at its central core, right? And then they're like, oh, right. And because for a lot of people, there's still this idea that games should and can only deliver one emotional note which is adventure and swashbuckling. Um, and I say that is not true. There are these very powerful games where the, this drama is very compelling and the reason you do it is to feel these emotions. And that's a really good a- example, Becky, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: yeah, so I think talking, talking into that thing about, you know, powerful emotions and about feeling powerful emotions um, leads to what is kind of one of the most central um, tenets and necessities for a kind of a more involved more dramatic um, and more engaged type of play and that is safety tools um, it's it's really vital when you start doing those kind of crossover kind of bleedy experiences that you make sure that you're protecting your players first um, so so do you just want to kind of touch on safety tools briefly
2: I would, yeah, I'd like to touch on safety tools. And I think that we've, we've been talking about them in, in the role-playing community for a long time now, and rightly so. But for me, they're, they're almost like an entry point at this stage. There's absolutely got to be a safety calibration. And there is a large number of tools out there to help you choose the right calibration and the right tools for your gaming group and the gaming experience you want to deliver. But it feels it's almost, for me, that's the baseline. That's the starting point. You know, there is going to be no game if we don't have those. And so I, I suppose that I'm really interested in, well, we've got this baseline, we're always improving that baseline, but where do we take it after that?
3: And I think dealing with, with uh, sensitive topics, uh, the more sensitive topics you have, the more pointed you need to be about safety tools. So, mm. you know, Kat published Honey and Hot Wack, which is an anthology of games, not just about sex, but in some of the games, you have sex while playing mm. the game, right? And so that's, you know, rather sensitive a thing. Uh, and having these uh, these uh, robust safety tools, I think, is really important just to make sure that everyone uh, is comfy. And and uh, uh, Maury Brown wrote a really great intro in the book about safety tools. And one of the yeah. things she says is, um, okay, we're talking about this drama, that scenes, people will allow themselves to be more vulnerable, people will allow themselves to be more emotionally engaged if they know that there are safety tools and there are calibration tools and that a scene is, people sometimes think, oh, there are safety tools, it's going to dilute the scene. Uh, Maury writes the complete opposite. If you know that there are (laughs) safety tools present, you're going to be more willing to be much more intense in the scene because you know we can, like, stop it. In fact, so it's really a... Safety tools, I find, are super effective because when I play role-playing games, um, I don't see safety tools actually invoked very often, but the very presence of them at the start when we discuss them makes players be like, yes, now I'm comfortable, confident that I can do this, and, and, and I feel comfortable to play hard and 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 even if i don't invoke the safety tool i know that i'm in a group that understands them and if i need to invoke them i will and so i think that's that's very powerful
1: it it creates a a culture of safety right it establishes straight off that you're all there to co-protect and to you know make sure that you're all taking care of yourselves but also that the game and the structure is set up to protect the players as well
3: yeah and like it's so it's so cool because like there's so many TV shows that after a while I kind of like stopped watching. I'm like, eh, I don't like where this is going, whatever. But in, in, the power of games is if we're playing and we don't like where it's going, we can be like, pause, let us re- recalibrate and go the direction we want. And you don't fall off the game because you are going where you want to. Unlike a TV show where you're like, oh, I don't really like this and I'm going to stop watching it, right?
2: I think it's all about the establishment of trust, isn't it? In order to be vulnerable. To have those um, emotional experiences, you need to be vulnerable in order to be comfortable being vulnerable and to be truly vulnerable. You need to be trusting. So we have these safety tools as our starting point. And I, I would just like to add my voice to saying that I think when I read Maury's introduction to safety tools in Honey and Hot Wax, despite the fact that I have read many, many safety tools and safety briefings over the years, it was probably the, the best one I'd ever seen. The <sighs> best one.
3: Moy did such a good job with that. But anyway, keep yeah, going I, will, I will eat adulation from you later,
2: Becky. <laughs> <laughs> do it, do it. Um, But I, I just wanted to touch on as well and saying that for me, safety tools can't just be about what we do at the beginning. It's not just about setting our lines and veils, saying we're using the X card. It's got to be constant kind of touch-ins throughout the game. And, and I would apply that to a lot where we're all in the same room together. Um, and an ongoing campaign week to week. Certainly, when I've been GMing ongoing campaigns and there's been tough stuff in, I have emailed people in between sessions and said, "This thing happened. Are we okay? Are you okay? Do we need to change anything in the next session because of that?" And it's really just about the the GM and the other players can do that, establishing and keeping that trust going throughout.
3: Yeah, there yeah, was, was a. a um, I love like that because you. the most the most like intense. One of the most intense, I should say, I shouldn't say the most, but one of the most intense moments I had in the Night's Black Agents campaign that Grant Ellis ran for us for Kat. Uh, there was an episode in the middle, which all of us agreed was one of our favorite episodes, but it was a very dark episode where we, like, captured these vampires and my character was about to, like, torture them. But I'm like, okay, pause everyone, can we, can we calibrate... A- like we're gonna have some torture and this is gonna be violent, and then we all agreed, okay, let's let's discuss this. We did for like a, a few minutes, like this is what's gonna happen. And then we went back into game, and it was really we had a great experience. We came out being like, wow, that was really intense, but in a really good way. And had we not discussed that, I would not have been willing to um to go there, right? I like, I don't want to make our viewers or our Uh, players feel weird but because okay everyone I'm going to pause I'm going to cut the scene and ask is everyone okay and to give our viewers a warning about okay this is where we're going right and and what you were saying because it was ongoing in the middle of the game we paused and did this we had an, an excellent time with that
1: yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that we could we could easily do a whole other panel on safety tools and and the importance of them not just in dramatic play but but in any kind of RPG really. Um, so Becky, I know you had um, I know you had thoughts about um, safety tools and play culture and and play culture and design and how those intersect. Um, did you want to Did you want to kind of kick off with that?
2: Yes. Um, so one of my big bugbears as a game designer, um, and this is why I seem to be pathologically incapable of writing a, a one or a two page game, is that I cannot stop myself giving advice on how to GM. And you'll know this cat from editing my work. But um, <laughs> when the dark has gone, that game itself is like two pages, but the GMing advice goes on for quite some time. Um, And the reason I say that, uh, particularly speaking to GMing games at the moment, is that the GM is such an important linchpin in creating that character and creating, sorry, creating that interesting character interaction, creating those thorny conflicts, setting the trust, and then delivering it at the table. Um, And. You know, aside from things like system mastery or the ability to improvise really cool stuff at the table, the GM has this really pivotal role in setting culture. The GM is there to set that baseline of trust by the way in which they introduce the safety tools. The GM is there to, you know, the the reality is in 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 our gaming culture, the GM does have a specific role. There is a power balance there. You know there are many discussions about whether that's a power balance is a good thing and I think those are important to have but let's not pretend that there is not that power balance at the moment so if that power balance is there we need to acknowledge it and leverage it and use it um, to uh, to create the right play culture and I think that too often we leave play culture either uh, to chance or there's been a really important play culture in the play testing phase that we didn't then go on to mention when we wrote the game text and the game text was handed off to people who are outside that play culture and it's almost like they were only reading every other line and so yeah I'm I'm particularly interested in saying interesting thorny character relationships they don't arise by accident play culture is one of the ways in which we can have them arise and the GM can be a really pivotal role in making that happen
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, Shrong, did you have anything that you wanted to add on
2: to that?
3: Yeah, I think that's a really an example of that is uh, when I do one-shots at conventions, right? At conventions, um, I mean, if I go to Metatopia, I, I, I know a lot of the people there. Um, but when I, I don't always, obviously, and when I go to other conventions, like the first time I went to uh, the Canadian or went to Breakout Con, you know, I knew very few people there. and But we were playing these games, and, and, and this idea of um, the play culture important because I if, if I play like I, one of the games I'll play with Hamish right I mean Hamish who designed um who designed uh, the sprawl uh he was running a plate as a sprawl and I decided I'm gonna play a like ice cold CEO terrible person right so my character was going to be mean to everyone on the table but I wouldn't have done that if Hamish hadn't set at the beginning this is the you know this is the kind of gameplay, and if the players I hadn't gelled a bit and i'm like and i I was realized oh i can do this with you if it was just complete strangers we didn't have a chance to do that we didn't have a gm who said these things i would be like oh i I would never play a mean character that might be very personal i would never play a mean character if that culture at the table hadn't already been set like this is okay for you to play a mean character um and yeah i think that we sometimes forget that uh these like uh, extra ludic that's gonna sound so posh but these things that are outside of the game script uh, affect the way we like play this game we like to be like as designers sometimes I think Becky we might be like oh our game everything is inside but then we remember oh wait people play our games um, and yeah. the relationship between people like when I play with Cleo who is one of the designers on Hot Wax, I find it very hard to play a game where we're fighting Right? Like in in when we played Just Little Loving together, we decided we're 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 our characters are gonna be friends with each other and we're gonna be happy because it wasn't a fun feeling for the two of us to play angry at each Mm -hmm. other.
2: So that's part of the safety calibration. What was that Becky? Sorry, I was gonna say I think that's part of going back to the safety calibration is you know, there's a really interesting space of tension if you're playing antagonistically. But if that is bleeding into an out of character, making you feel small as a person, as opposed to making your character feel small in a fun way, and that that's come brings it back around to that, doesn't it? Yes,
3: yes, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yes. And and that kind of comes from your your design can support that that positive kind of play, and your your design can and should, um, I would argue, like Becky, in, incorporate those kind of tools for the GM to make sure that they're able to guide that play into you know, we've used the word calibration a lot, but it's, a, it's the perfect word for making sure that everyone everyone at the table is on the same page with regard to where the game is going.
3: There's a great yeah. example that Becky, I admire, that you have written. So I like Lovecraft-esque a lot. And one of the things I tell people about Lovecraft-esque is that it? Actually, uh, at its core, is a competitive game in a way <laughs> because the different people are competing to impose their version of the truth, right? So, Love Lovecrafts for the viewers who don't know is a is a uh, Cthulhu mythos game, but each person has a different idea of what the mystery is, and you're trying to impose that, right? But it's really fun because it's it's not like a oh competitive game. The the competition <laughs> element of it is enjoyable we're all in really enjoying like oh my god no no my version is kind of right and and i think that that game structures it well you don't come out feeling like oh my god i'm sad that my answer didn't come to pass you come out being like oh my god it didn't go in the way i was thinking at all that's so wild and i think that's an example of what Kat's saying designed to support uh, a player dynamic that you are looking to um see and achieve
1: yeah, so so let's let's take a deeper dive into um, the importance of of game mechanics um, in kind of centering and and creating those moments of drama um, and promoting promoting a more emotional play. Um, what what kind of mechanics can we include? Um, what are particularly good? How can we incentivize that type of play through the mechanics that we? Um, that we introduce um, about randomization what impact does that have that's just pretty wheel
2: yeah,
3: it yeah yeah uh hmm i'll need a sec to think about this
2: well, while you're thinking i will be so design you you. Uh, so my yeah, yeah the design mechanics so my maxim um to kind of steal something from um management is that what is on your character sheet is what will get done in the game mm. so what stats you have on your character sheet what abilities what moves if, if it's a PBTA game that are available to you when you're in the middle of the action if you look down at your character sheet those are the things the tools you have the hammers you have to beat that nail with the nail of the plot That's how that works doesn't it yeah yeah, yeah. so like so that'd be my first thing is that if you want to have really really cool tense character interactions you have to be putting abilities for that on your character sheet and I'll talk about bite marks now very quickly because this is something that was absolutely central to the design of bite marks, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse game of werewolf pack dynamics. And there is a number of moves in there which feed into it. So firstly, you have moves which are you can use on your other players, which are sort of player versus player. So things like dominate and mauling. And those are things you can do to other people, right? Okay, so far, so just beating people up and getting them to do what you want. no. The other end of the character sheet, you have moves like spill and provoke spill. So if somebody dominates you to do a thing you don't want to do, then later on, somebody else can make you express how you feel about it by making you spill. And every time you do that, you get pack points, which power you up for the final fight. So you have this kind of mechanical loop that you are doing things to each other to create drama. And there's ways of calibrating that so it doesn't completely make the pack go nuclear. But there's ways of, so there's calibration of drama, which feeds into this cycle. The cycle then gives you a mechanical incentive to have emotionally fraught and dramatic conversations where you confess secrets and shout at each other about how you feel betrayed, um, which then powers you up for a big fight. So that is a kind of a, a mechanical loop. But it really comes down to if it's not on the character sheet, I'm not going to remember to do it. Yeah, I love
3: how, um, like Avery Alder and and Vincent Baker, explicitly in both Apocalypse World and Monst- and uh, Monster Hearts, have like a sex move in the character sheet because that, like you were saying, Becky, that signals to the player oh, these characters have sex. And you're incentivized to bring your character into situations where that move will be used because it is on your character sheet. You want to do this cool thing on your character sheet. Um, And then the other thing you said that resonated was this idea of um, your very specific example of spilling your feelings about it. I think mechanics that make you talk about your feelings are very powerful. So in Just Little Loving, uh, one of the things that your characters do after a sex scene, it's a game about age, so it's a game fundamentally at some level about sex, right? Um, So uh, after you have a sex with a character, you stand back to back and give a monologue of what is going through your head right now. Um, And that's very powerful because people have sex for all kinds of reasons. Uh, and have lots of different feelings after and before it, and so there was definitely scenes where I'm like, "Oh wow, our character enjoying this so much, this is so cool." At the end, the other person's like, "Oh my god, that was a means to an end," and I was like, "What?" Uh, and it's it's really cool, um, like just making people um, uh, make people a voice voice those things uh, can be very powerful because it'll signal to the player uh, what. Um, how to proceed, right? Like, oh, this is, the drama's happening, I can, I can now move in that direction towards the drama. And the other thing I want to say uh, is that um, games, at, at some level, you can say, are fundamentally about people incentivizing people to take specific act- actions, right? Mm-hmm. And so the actions the game incentivizes are what you're going to do. So if you want people to have drama and misfortune, if your game rewards you, for doing things that will bring you misfortune then people will want to do those things right a very easy example is in monster of the week the mortal character right the mortal character one of their sticks is uh most of their moves are geared around throwing themselves into danger and getting into trouble that will give them more experience right so a player playing the mortal Their whole, essentially, job in the mystery machine and the mystery gang they're playing is about, I'm going to do stupid things to get us into trouble, which will, A, make the narrative more interesting, because now monsters are chasing us and stuff, and B, the game will then give me XP. So, so incentivizing uh, mechanically bad Mm -hmm. things to happen to your player, either, you know, like in Monster League with monsters chasing you, or, you know, other more subtle drama ways, is a great way to introduce these sorts of emotional
2: complications. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right and that comes back to that play culture again, doesn't it Sharon? The idea that we many of us grew up in a play culture that said, you want to succeed at the dungeon that you are going through, you don't want to fail at this failing is bad um, and now I think we've, we've been in a position for a long time of sort of saying, well failing is just more story, isn't it? And that's cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And of course, that's not to say that people don't have fun in the like dungeon kind of game mm-hmm. right? where it's it's about like, 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 I love playing 13th age another other of cats games, right? Um, where the GM has this sort of slightly more <laughs> of, authorian Authorian <laughs> role like they're more of an author and you're like, you know, going through and stuff, not entirely, of course. But that is more, the mechanics are skewed towards that, and I, I like that sort of play as well, but I think it is important to be like, these are different kinds of games, just like I don't want the same type of breakfast every single day, I want different kinds of games at different times.
1: Um, so talking about having the same kind of game versus not, I mean, where, what do you think about randomization? In games that encourage drama, so for example, using dice or tokens or um, or cards or something to to randomize events that can happen in the game. Do you think that they have a place in dramatic play, or is there is there the potential for a dangerous situation arising if the players don't have full agency? I mean, I think
3: that. Uh, I think the I, the uh, things that Becky brought up before about having this the play culture where we trust each other is like important for that right where I'm like um, okay so like monster hearts has a really interesting example of turn someone on right which is a move <laughs> where you can roll dice to see if you turn someone on and that that, that's one of the tenets of what Avery talks about in terms of queer play like you can't choose you get attracted to right um and so that's a game that potentially that could be like hmm do I want to play a game where where let's say Kat and I are playing or do I want to play a game where my character is attracted to this character that's run by my business partner right like Kat is my publisher right like do I want to do that right um but if we have a play culture where we are where we agree like this is a game where this could happen and we have an accepting play culture and we're like and we have robust safety tools and things i think it is very much um, it, it it adds a lot right because we because we know that randomization has the potential in certain game systems to make it more interesting we're just used to it like Becky said in 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 one kind of way which is like combat mechanics and stuff right <laughs> so I think it absolutely has a place in this kind of game but you might want to have you know a, a better discussion at the start about like hey this might happen are we okay with playing this kind of game like if I'm playing with my dad I might not want to allow my character to be attracted to his character. I'm like, I don't <laughs> want to work really with that with my dad, right? <laughs> but, like, with Cat, I'm like, okay, Cat is like a business partner of mine, but we will pre-negotiate that this might be a thing that happens, and we can, you know, like, continue, for example.
2: I think you're right. I think it's the type of game, isn't it? So we have some games which are almost like more LARP style games, where the, the system does not touch the conversation almost at all. So the system might yeah. be just we're going to set up a bunch of interesting relationships and you will do scenes in this order and you will do these types of scenes but when we're actually talking in the scenes there is no dice rolling, there is no checking rules or looking at my character sheet and that's one type of way that you can elicit drama and right through to the other end where, you know, I've I played Dungeons and Dragons or Amber where we had some really cool emotional interactions with them. With, um, with and
3: Amber Diceless?
2: I love Amber Diceless. Everybody I knows I really, love Amber,
3: right? <laughs> anyone mention Amber Diceless? Oh my god! I'm a
2: massive Amber Diceless. Anyway, anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the, the the spectrum is so that we have this spectrum, right? Um, and then we have these games sort of sitting in the middle, who have carved out a niche whereby the roll of the dice affects the emotional drama between the character. Because in, say, Dungeons & Dragons, it's not really calibrated to affect the emotional drama. That might be a byproduct of whether you manage to kill a kobold in the right way. you know. But then we have this kind of set of games sort of in the middle on this spectrum. And it's, I think it's really just a toolbox that, um, that is open to people to use. Um, I'm a huge fan of putting in some sort of randomization or agency-removing mechanisms if you have established a good trust baseline, um, because it it gives you um, a foil to have something to be vulnerable to toward, if you know what I mean. So you can be vulnerable in a, one of these more LARP style games where you're having a conversation and you're exploring your feelings and you are narrating your feelings and you have the uncertainty of how the other person is going to respond to you. But there isn't really much uncertainty beyond that. I think there's a really interesting area when you do have randomization. For example, Avery's um, turn someone on move, where there's a curveball that the game throws you, that you have this opportunity to be, to be vulnerable toward that you weren't expecting, and I think there's a there's a real magic that can happen there.
3: And I love that idea of what you said, agent removal, because I think a a uh, a um, superficial understanding of games might dictate this idea that you must always give players more agency, and that I don't think that's true at all. I think Obviously, games have something to do with choice and agency, but I think removing agency, I think, can be really powerful. And I think uh, people uh, right now, um I've noticed people can sometimes be scared. Of playing games where their emotional agency is determined randomly and things. And of course, um, you are allowed to like or not like or play and not play things that make you comfortable and interested. But I encourage people to give these games a chance where their emotion, where because, you know, we play lots of games where your bodily health is at stake, right? So all the time, we're like, oh yeah, my limb can be cut off, sure. But I also encourage you to play these games that Becky was saying that, um, that, put your emotional agency and stuff at stake that you might have to react uh, in ways that you weren't expecting emotionally rather than just like an anatomically. Um, and I think uh, that can be very powerful and cool.
1: Mm. And I, th- I think we, we, we kind of touched earlier on the role of the GM and that and of impairing um, the GM in your design to take particular actions. Um, are, there, are there times when um, the GM should, not step in to guide the action you know what role does the gm have in in directing that drama you know do you think there there are good ways for the gm to direct drama or bad ways for them to direct drama should they be allowed to direct the drama or should the players have agency over that
2: oh well, you know i've got some quite strong views on that cat i do.
1: <laughs> do i do it's like i like I just no, that's not that's the opposite
2: way. I was trying to do a baseball. Do a baseball metaphor there. So I think there are two things. Um, So um, there are two ways in which I think the GM can be really powerful in um, dramatic relationships. Um, And the reason that I think that actually games which have a GM can be particularly powerful is because the onus of creating the background world is lifted from you. You are no longer trying to deeply embody your character in a way which allows you to be vulnerable whilst you've got half a mind on, I've got to direct this scene, I need to introduce this element which will set up this next scene for this other person. You can concentrate solely on your character and give give over all of those elements to the GM. So I think there's one way, just by having a GM there who is controlling the world and playing other characters, which is really important and powerful um, for a particular type of game. Second thing is that the GM needs to know when to shut up. So I call it Anison's rule, first rule. I think it's Anison's first rule um, of the GM needs to know when to be quiet. Because as as GMs, we often feel, and the play culture that we have developed, is we've got to keep the action going. We've got to throw in another curveball. We've got to bring in another explosion. There's got to be something interesting around that corner because I can't have my players bored. I've got to move it on. And it's my responsibility as GM to move it on, keep that pace going, keep bringing all of this stuff in, which is a huge responsibility that we place on our own shoulders, frankly. However, I have seen so many interesting emotional conversations get derailed because the GM was panicking about bringing in the next monster to keep the pace going. So my second rule is, GM, you need to know when to shut up.
3: I hear the... I keep giving examples to the principles you're outlining, Becky. But I was running a game of Masks for Magpile Curated Play program, and I always ask at the end of every session, how was that? Do you want to say anything? I remember the end of the first session for this particular campaign, they're like, oh, we actually appreciate more time with the team just doing doing teen stuff with you hanging out right because we want some of this drama and I'm like oh okay so I because I had that impulse like you said oh it's a superhero game I must have lots of villains show up all the time and do dastardly things and they're like oh we just wanted to you know hang out and 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 like crush on each other a bit and I'm like oh okay <laughs> so I they I, I asked for the feedback so that was exactly that I wanted they wanted space for I'm like uh, stand back a bit well in this case in zoom sit back a bit Um. And uh, uh, let them just do their thing. And then uh, the other thing that I think is uh, valuable to look at is if you as an audience interested in this, it is very valuable to look at Nordic lot techniques. Um, I was at Living Games Conference where Lizzie Stark taught uh, a workshop of using this, some of these GM drama, these meta techniques, which are very theatrical in nature, uh, about like the GM can do things like, let's pause the scene Let's rewind and redo that scene. But remember, you know this thing or like, hey, uh, I'm going to ask you to voice what your inner thoughts are right now. Uh, you know, like all these like meta techniques to draw out the drama, like, uh, like a good um, theater or film director, right? Who can, who can be like, hey, I have an external viewpoint. Of what is going on here, and I think you can do this more. I think I can see this coming from you more, and so I would, I would definitely look into um, Nordic lore meta techniques. Um, and then, you know, some people do that already in their tabletop role playing games. Um, Emily Carr Boss in her romance trilogy very explicitly calls out: you should use these Nordic lore meta techniques mm. in this game. Um And I think that's a very valuable tool, and we don't have that. That's a co- longer conversation, but looking into that could be interesting for our um panel viewers. I
2: think. Yeah, I absolutely. think there's also. Um, no, you go. Sorry, are we I'll, I'll be very quick? Um, I was going to say that I, I think there's also a role for the GM asking questions um pointed questions so um when the dark is gone has a facilitator character who isn't called a gm they're called a therapist because it's a group therapist session and i wanted to get on the whole storyteller holly hot god bandwagon with it Um, but one of the things that you are required to do when you run that game is to ask questions how does that make you feel how, how does your character react to that? Um, and I've lifted that technique and taken it into future games. If I, as the GM, spot a potential conflict between two characters, then I'm going to hang a lantern on it and say, oh, that character did that thing just then. I wonder how your character is going to feel about it in the next scene when they see them oh. I,
3: I love that. I think it's a it's a super powerful tool. Some GM like, oh, but that dilutes the action. I don't believe that uh, it's in in a heated situation. It's very fun to be to turn to like, what do you feel about this given that you have experienced this before? Or how do you feel about seeing your ex girlfriend's werewolf boyfriend now like tear into this person? You know, yeah. and it, it, it can be really fun is I've, I've done it to players who aren't used to that. You know they're not used to being asked about the interiority of their characters as much, and and they I've seen them like enjoy that a lot about oh wow yeah I'd be feeling like this and then the table is like ooh because they you know um, stories fundamentally are about character change right that's what stories are about they're not about the like cool description of the mountain that's in front of you or whatever they're about how characters respond and so people like when you learn about these, especially if it's at a gaming table where you're already growing to like these characters and then see, oh, what do they feel? And people, like, that's enjoy- It's an enjoyable thing. So these char- questions aren't always about what do you do next. Questions can also be like, oh, why are you asking this? Or like, how do you feel about the fact that he's trying to swindle your best friend, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. I think another super important technique as well that um, I, I feel like you brought up in When the Dark is Gone, Becky, Um is um, just in terms of talking about those those GM um, the things that GMs can do, um, you you foregrounded the role of silence from the GM mm. as like a really powerful way of of creating drama because when um, like like you said Becky, the GM does have power at the table whether you know whether we want to admit it or not. Um, so when the GM is silent. It creates a kind of a power vacuum and people don't really know what to do. And and that tension, I've I've seen some phenomenal drama created as a result of that kind of talking vacuum where, like, you know, two characters are talking and they they don't want to get deeper into what they're talking about. So they finish their conversation and the DM just sits there and looks at them and they're like and and you, you know you inevitably get a kind of a, a deeper dive then into into what they're talking about um and also yeah like like Sharon was saying as well about uh, directorial techniques from other media so from mm-hmm. theater from film tv um, i played in the game of actually lizzie starks the curse um which is a very powerful game with a lot of intense emotions um and i was in the middle of a big intense scene with another character and it was Graham Walmsley was was running it, and um, you know we I felt like we were just about to get to the kind of cl- the, the climax of the scene, basically, and he cut it, and he was like, "Right, let's leave it there." And I was just
2: <laughs>
1: and player, I was I was just kind of
2: like, "What?"
1: And, but it was like it just it was a fantastic way of of reframing that whole conversation, you know being able to take a step back from it because sometimes you, you know you can get really heated as a player and you can get really involved with it so the gm like like I think you both said has that external view you know they have that objective view of the whole game and not just of that little one-on one that you're having or whatever and it and those can be very very powerful tools when they bring that to, to bear um so let's let's talk quickly about um about kind of setting and plot right so we've talked a lot about of the characters and the, it, we know the importance of getting the characters building relationships between the characters what what impact does say the setting of the game have you know can you have dramatic interaction in a game about accountants doing tax returns you know does does the setting need to have um, need to be structured in a certain way do players backstories need to be pl- structured in a certain way what are the best types of settings and, and backstories for dramatic interactions
3: i think so so first of all i think like
1: we said stories are about
3: characters right so you will always you can always find interesting interactions and drama in like any setting because again stories are about people right and so Mm -hmm. that's that's why you know you have successful games that are about dragons but you also have successful games about with uh, South American soap operas, right, or you have successful games about uh, people working in a hospital and things like that right like the ward I think is what I'm thinking of um and and I think the the way to keep the interest up is always what we were talking about earlier is to have this idea of uh, i like either conflict like what are the characters again like fighting against or how are the characters trying to achieve what they want, right? And so giving the accountants, for, to, for Kat's example, so giving each character like what they want to achieve, it could be they want to get promoted, it could be they really want to expose the horribleness of the company, or it could even be like, I want to do a good job and make sure my boss likes me, right? Um, that is something people want to achieve. So I think any setting, as long as you have things to achieve... Or things that are conflict to like thrive against. I think that's good. And of course, you could also um you like that, that, that's a caveat. Right, the caveat could be you could also just be wanting a play experience where you're just playing accountants, laughing with each other, uh, and that's fine too. Right, if you just want a mellow, chilly, maybe you all you know smoke to joint and are just like we're gonna play a game or we're sitting around just chatting with each other, but as accountants, um, that's fine too. But I, I would argue that, that will that is good at times. Most of the time, most players crave some sort of, like, tension. Um, and in that case, like I said, uh, having aims that your character wants to achieve and having obstacles that they need to be overcome is probably the best way to ensure that you're going to have these cool, like, drama elements.
2: Yeah, I think that setting can introduce interesting challenges and it can eject conflict but that if you haven't set up your characters to exploit that and if you haven't set up your character relationships to exploit that then it doesn't really matter if you are in a high drama concept like uh, a werewolf a werewolf pack uh, or a low drama concept like accountants um and i was just I was just thinking actually as, as Sharon was talking about in terms of setting up conflict, one of the the bits of Hillfolk which I love the most is that when you set up those character relationships, oh please let me say I've got the game right, because cat's watching me. (laughs) Um, So when you set up those character relationships, is there not um, between each character there has to be, what is the thing that I want from your character that they will not give me? And that's it. That's the sentence. That's perfect. That gives you everything you need to know. It's just such a beautiful... Such a neat little way of immediately injecting um, every interaction you have. It doesn't matter what you're doing in the scene. Everything yeah. is going to be coloured by the thing that you want from them that they will not give you and why they won't give it to you. It's just yeah. so beautiful and so simple.
3: I think yeah. starting a game where, where in create I think we don't do this enough in some of the more um, combat-focused games is that uh, starting relationships between your characters can really be immensely fun to be, to play, right? Where I I was playing a a game at a con and we, like, spontaneously me and this stranger i didn't know decided this was gen con this year yeah uh it was a superhero game and me and this obviously decided that we were super rivals and we would just get annoyed at each other everything they did like oh my god you killed the giant robot i could have done that way better you know
2: um (laughs) and
3: having and we didn't decide that early but though having that made the game experience richer for everyone um these pre-existing relationships. And this last thing, I think um, Becky touched on the setting idea. I think, uh, I think I, I stand by what I said, which is that settings, any setting you can make interesting things happen. However, it is also true that you can design a setting that is rich in seeds for a GM or for players mm-hmm. to draw on, right? Like, if you're saying we are accountants at a lovely accountant office where nothing ever happens and we just do money then okay you can make some conflict there it could be really interesting but it could also uh, to make it easy for players to draw up conflicts and for gms to be like oh and this happens like oh well we're actually accountants we're trading souls for hades um, <laughs> and you know all this stuff is happening and cerberus has gotten loose and oh zagreus is trying to escape all the time um Right, so having a setting that an interesting setting that way can also make it easier to to roll up in, for for want of a better term, uh, to roll up these conflicts and uh, to come up with interesting seeds uh, and wrenches to throw at the players.
2: And wrenches is a really good way of talking about it. When Josh and I talk about it at home in, in our game design work, we often say that what we want is we want some really juicy, complicated, messy starting relationships, which could be as simple as, what do I desperately want from your character that you won't give me? Um, And then your setting is your pressure cooker that you throw those relationships into and then start cranking up the pressure. I think that the the two of those things combined is what gets you your really, really explosive content. Yeah. And
3: an example Becky gives... Has a like has a like you know I has a semi antagonistic feel. You can go the other direction, right? You can be like Becky and my characters like cannot live without each other. Mm. And that's amazing. And then the conflict can become well, what if one of us is put in danger? What happens, right? And you don't. It doesn't. I don't want our viewers. To, I don't want you folks to be like, oh, at a table, I must have these semi antagonist relationships. one. sometimes I love it when. Our team is like super tight, but because of that, drama can occur. Um, Like, oh no, my friend is now in danger. How do I feel about this? You know?
2: I I often think actually one of the most powerful ways to run Monster Hearts is to have a setup where the characters all used to be close childhood friends. And they have that initial sense of we were close to each other once. And now everything, we are all being pulled apart in different directions. Because if you have a baseline of we used to be really close and now the setting is intervening to try and rip us apart with all this interesting emotional stuff and all of these incredibly antagonistic moves that are in Monster Hearts for using on each other. But if you start from a baseline of we used to be tight and now we're not, that gives you a space to really ratchet up tension as a GM. Rather than sort of saying, "Well, hang on a minute," with the way that you're talking to me at the moment, why would I? Do, why would my character ever hang around you or interact with you, or <laughs> I ever do? Anything <laughs> with I've got to have a reason that I keep picking at that scab, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Something that that brings you back together, and like you said, keeps keeps the focus and the spotlight on that drama, rather than having a situation where the characters are like, "I'm just, I'm just not going to see you again because this is like too much." you need to that pressure cooker um metaphor that you used earlier is is exactly what you want Becky yeah um so what about the difference between um designing for tabletop rpgs versus larp do you think that there are different um techniques that you need to use for creating drama in each of those or are they are they quite similar what do you think I mean,
3: Becky had a really good point about uh, when, she, uh, when she described a bit about like, sometimes LARPs, it's the thing is about the setup and the mechanics in mm-hmm. the game was kind of light. And, and that's not always true, of course, but I think that's a, a good rule of thumb, uh, especially when we're dealing with randomization mechanics, because it, I have, I have um, had jarring moments, uh, not, not like terrible moments, like they were jarring emotionally, not emotionally, that's a bad thing in my enjoyment of the game. They jarred my enjoyment of the game um, because, you know, we're playing this thing and then, okay, pause and do rock, paper, scissors. Or, like, pause and, like, shuffle through the deck of card which is somewhere on your person now in your costume somewhere where I don't even know. Uh, and then draw a card and, okay, this happened. And that I'm not saying that's bad style of playing, right? Because it, it's an art form. How can you say that something is bad, right? Other people will like it. But for me, I have felt that sometimes relying in larp on random mechanics that rely on external factors in in the middle of the scene can like break the thing a bit I'm like oh but I was I was in character embodied right um so I would shy shy away from that sort of design if I want to have randomization so Cleo Yansu Davis's um Cleo we talked about before her example of the long drive back from Busan is a really good example where your random mechanic is between scenes right so you have a scene and then you're like, okay, uh, it's a, you're a Korean boy band, you're a K-pop band uh, performing at a concert after getting some bad news that your band is struggling and you will be disbanded if you don't do well at the concert, right? And so in between scenes, you roll the die to be like, how was your performance? Um, or you roll the die to be like, are you going to get your secret desire or not? So that happens in between scenes, uh, the, the cool random thing we talked about before, and then in the scene, you're kind of free of of having to pause to do the random mechanic because I feel sometimes that might pull you out. So that's one difference. Uh, There's something about when you're embodied, it being a bit more impactful. If you're at a table, I would feel less bad about, let's pause and roll this die, you know? Um, uh, There's something I felt about LARP versus TTRPG.
1: Okay. Um, We just got our 10-minute warning. I'm not sure if people watching on Twitch can hear that. So, um, Marshall, our our disembodied voice in the ether, do we have any questions from the Twitch? I'm not actually looking at it, so I I can't tell what's going on.
0: Yes, we do. Actually, it's been a really fantastic conversation going along with everything you all have been saying. I'm impressed, given that it's 9 a.m. on the East Coast of America. I know.
1: (laughs) The uh, day after Biden was... uh, Yeah.
3: To be fair, the majority of this panel is in like GMT time, right? Like, I'm the only one uh, out of the three panelists who's on the East Coast. So, yeah.
0: Well, I got a series of comments I think y'all should know about Uh, a question and a request. The comments are. As soon as you mentioned Amber Diceless, you've got four or five people absolutely on your side. uh, Who doesn't love hearing about that. Uh, Also, uh, a question from the RPG Pipeline. A question if you get the time. A key aspect of relationships is status and the relative status of the characters. Yet RPGs are almost pathologically insisting that all PCs should be equal. How do you encourage playing with status in the face of this obstacle?
1: That's a that's a great question, and I know that that's something that Becky has done a lot of work with in in Byte marks in particular. Did you want to Did you want to touch on that,
2: Becky? Uh, yeah, sure. I think there's I think there's ways that status can be used to shut down interesting conversations. So I remember as a as a teenager playing a lot of vampire and a lot of vampire love, and finding that actually not being able to talk to certain people, not being able to have certain conversations because of the status differential can really shut down. Um, so I think that. Status needs to be calibrated, I say calibrate again very carefully to make sure that you're not shutting down conversations. However, it can, um, and I'm pretty sure I know who RPG Pipeline is, so I'm going to say Pride and Prejudice. It can, when you're talking about social status, give you some particularly juicy things to play with if you write it in. And I think it comes down to, again, leaning into things that make you feel vulnerable. Playing a character who has a lower status than somebody else is something that makes you feel vulnerable, and yet it can be this really juicy, meaty thing. So I think get your safety calibration right, and then lean into those difficult feelings. Yeah, I and think, I think, think really if you're playing
3: a, I think if you're playing a GM'd game, it is important for the GM to remember that. Oh, it can be very easy to fall into a trap of a lot of the plot hooks come to the person with the high status or the low status. I think it's important as a GM to to just make sure that oh you're spreading out character hooks like it'll be it'll be less fun like i i would love to play a character where where i oh, i admire this other pc because they're super high status, but then it becomes sad if all the character hooks are then because of that person so as a gm just make sure to recognize yeah we have a high status thing but spread out to where like story threads tie so
2: mm-hmm. I, mean, I, think I think as I, well status isn't the you go go no you go you're the panelist status isn't <laughs> Status isn't the only power differential you can have in relationships, or you can have different types of status. So I think that if a good way of getting over the whole, all the plot comes to this one person, or I can't talk to them because they're more high status, they can't be seen talking to me in public, is to give people different types of status in the relationships. Yeah,
1: that, that's absolutely a, a great point. Um, Another thing that I was I was gonna say with regard to status is that um I know in um <clears throat> in quite a few of the Nordic LARPs that I've played in, um, there have been characters with big status differentials. Like for example, I played in a vampire LARP, I love vampire, but big issues with the status system as it was played traditionally. Um, but we did a, a Nordic-style um vampire, the Masquerade LARP, um, called Convention of Thorns. And it, it was really interesting to me in that in that all of the high status characters were effectively expe- were expected by the the game organisers to be almost like NPCs to have an NPC like aspect and there's a, a a massive tradition in in Nordic LARP that if you're playing a high like that a high status character that all the plot comes into that one of your key roles almost at the expense of getting to play your own character is that you are responsible for disseminating plot that you are you know you are responsible for making sure that the people of lower status than you are engaged with the plot and are engaged with the story so i think it's it's a matter of of building in techniques to tell your players that even if they have a character that's high status in some way that doesn't it's not about shutting out the other players it's their responsibility to bring the other players into that, right? That you're giving them, you're trusting them with something very important, right? But that part of that trust is that they will then share that with, with other players.
3: And I think it, a caveat to that is, is it's, Kat isn't saying, uh, because it's, it's easy to take what Kat's saying and imagine, oh, that means the way to, to help this is by giving a lot of difficulties to the high-status character. That is true, but that that's still just creating lots of play for the high-status character, right? It isn't just about make their life challenging, it's about make mm-hmm. sure they are empowered to inter- engage with the other character
1: To create more. play for everyone else, yeah.
0: yeah. I have two more questions for you, a bit of a lightning okay. round in the last Great. couple of minutes.
1: Yeah. yeah, absolutely, go for it. All right,
0: first one from, uh, Ooh, I won't be able to... Oh, Huggy Ray. There we go. That's how you pronounce it. <laughs> I, think I thought it was Finnish. Uh, question. I often play games where characters and relationships are pre-written. Do you have tips for setting those up to encourage those dynamics? Is it better to... Is, is it better to be more specific or to leave uh, more things unwritten to let players fill in the gaps with things meaningful to them?
1: That's a great question. And then
0: a second question from Kevin Colt, but I'll let you take Huggy Ray's first.
3: So I'm gonna give a really unsatisfying answer as a professor in that it's always a balance and you must find the middle ground, right? Because you always want to have some details for the player to draw from, but you also, uh, especially if they're pre-written and if they're people who don't know each other or whatever, you want them to have some creativities that they feel ownership of the character and they feel that the character is theirs when they play it. But I think a great way to to balance that is just use what Becky said before, which is in the character sheet or whatever, have leading questions, right? So you have your whatever character description and then the end we like uh, like you know, monster uh, not not uh, Pocket games across the board, I think, do this very well. Uh, where they, to all the published ones I've seen have a thing like which of the characters once did this to you and how? Which of them saved you from a supervillain and why are you jealous of them for it, you know? So having these leading questions that include parts of the backstory, like Achilles says, which of them saved you? So now it's, it's established that you were once saved, but then leaving space to, to build on that is a very good way of dealing with pre, pre-gens. Yeah, Becky, any, any thoughts to add on
1: that?
2: I'm not sure I do, actually. I think that Xiaorang's answer is pretty much perfect, is that really all you need is a spicy question, a provocative question to set up a tense relationship. Um, And as long as you've got that, I think you can rely on people to um, improvise around the edges of what the details of it were. But there's a real craft, I think, in creating those provocative questions to to make sure that they are kind of pinpointed to um, maximise drama.
3: Yeah, for example, the question example I gave, I don't think is a good question, right? Which is, mm-hmm. how did they save you and why are you jealous? Because you're mm-hmm. jealous because they saved you, right? So that's an ill-thought-out mm-hmm. question. So, yeah. So, one
1: more one. Like... Oh, sorry. I, I just heard it. Was that a one-minute warning? I think it was a 30-second. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> can can we talk get Kevin's question super quickly? Uh, yeah,
0: well, minute Kevin's minute. question is uh, pretty good for a lightning, lightning, lightning round of, what is your favorite mechanic for building bonds between characters? Number one favorite mechanic. What game? Oh god. Uh, for me uh, it's Hillfolk. So, yeah. Same
2: it's, it's me, the same for me. It's the Hillfolk. Yeah. It's uh-huh. the what does uh, this, the, this, the traditional around character that yeah, they Yeah, because want
1: to give you why why does that character why can't that character give it to you? Like the car- both players then get to establish their halves of that relationship. That's also mine.
2: Um,
3: I, I re- I'm going to cheat and talk about a game in the book edited. I really like Cleo Davis's Pass the Sugar, Please, where the first round um, you have to uh, confirm that you had sex with a character by talking about food, uh, and the awkwardness that that generates is a really fun like character dynamic thing.
1: Cool. Um, and so I think we're probably over time. So where can people find you both on the internet and talk very, very quickly about what you're working on?
2: Becky? So I am currently working on a game called Wreck-This Deck, which is a um, demonologist game where you hack and make art and solo journal your way through a deck of cards. And you can find me on at Becky Anison at Twitter and Black Armada at Patreon.
3: Uh, And I am Sharung Biswas, and you can find me on Twitter, uh, again, that full name, that full spelling. And... um... Uh, I just released Honey and Hot Wax with Kat. It was nominated for an IndieCade Award, which is a big deal. Uh, I am allowed to say that for my own game. Uh, so do check that out. And we're doing a spiritual successor Kickstarter right this moment. We are 93% funded with like 18, 17 days to go. It's called Strange Lust, Strange Loves. It's bringing together all these award-winning writers to write um, saucy interactive fiction. So uh, do check that out.
1: And you can find us uh, everywhere. We're Pelgrane Press um, on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of that. And I'm at catthm on Twitter. So thank you very much um, to both of you for for joining me uh, today. This chat about drama, I love the drama. So anything we can do to get that better into our games and into our designs is, is good stuff by me. And also, can I just give a super shout out to um, Billy Gordon and V Hendro? Did a fantastic panel on. Um, developing um, emotional uh, play. And if you haven't seen that already, you should definitely check that out because if you like this panel, theirs is also really, really good about
2: a similar kind of topic. Cool.